Okay, um, so let us start from uh, question one. of the study question behind the manual, or our makeshift manual. So question one says, what agreement did God make with Adam and his posterity? What agreement did Adam, sorry, with God, sorry, did God make with Adam and his posterity? Anyone? I, I, so I want to use, so it's just question one. Uh, um, we've not touched two, three, four, five, well, we've not touched the rest, basically. So I just want us to use question one to start our discussion this evening. So one answer. So it's sort of like a way of recap of the things that we talked about last week. What agreement? It's a simple answer, so I'm not even sure what the what agreement did God make with Adam and his posterity from our conversation last week. It's not. I'm not asking in a vacuum, because maybe there are some other theological ideas in your mind. No, I'm talking about what we talked about last week. So from our last conversation last week, what agreement did God make with Adam and his posterity? Okay, just don't worry. Just, I, I can hear you. So if I can, oh sorry, again. Okay, and then last week, what did we call that specific? I mean, from the words of the confession, what did we call that uh, specific agreement? Someone else now. From. From our confession, paragraph one, what did we call that specific agreement? Is there, you can just open it and read it. What did we call that one? No one can remember. Okay, let's read paragraph one together. I'm, I'm actually surprised. Let's read paragraph one together. Let someone else read paragraph one. Okay. Someone should read paragraph one. God gave Adam a law of comprehensive obedience within his heart and a specific precept not to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Okay, hold on. So the... The, this do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What does the confession call it? Thank you. It called it a specific precept or a particular precept. But last week, which other name did we give it? Thank you. We called it the positive law. Okay. When, um, the confession says law of comprehensive obedience. What is the confession talking about? How did we describe the law of comprehensive obedience last week or the law of universal obedience? How did we describe it? Thank you. Okay. Only one person attended uh, last week. We called it the natural law. Let someone else define the, the natural law. Is, is the mic working now? Thank you. So it's only the ladies that came. The law upon the heart. Later now, you people will say it's the men that should. Okay, so the law upon the heart. Okay, um, the law upon the heart is also, is what in its essence? Thank you, finally. 
Finally, we have a man. <laughs> it's also referred to as the moral law. Okay, good. Um, what has been learned last week? Um, we also learned last week that there's a different way, well, not really different, but the, the right way to look at this entire paragraph one is to see it from the lens of grace. And I don't want to go over all of the things we talked about last week, but in case you've forgotten, I, I don't know. So yes, so um, today we're going to pick up from paragraph two, and I'm going to read it since the mic is not available. Let me read paragraph two to us. The same law, okay, so let me read one and two so that you can get the flow of it. God gave Adam a law of comprehensive obedience written his heart and a specific precept not to eat the fruits of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. By these, God obligated him and all his descendants to personal, total, exact, and perpetual obedience. God promised life if Adam fulfilled it and threatened death if he broke it and he gave Adam the power and ability to keep it. Paragraph two. The same law that was written for, sorry, that was first written in the human heart continued to be a perfect rule of righteousness after the fall. It was delivered by God on Mount Sinai in Ten Commandments and was written in two tables. The first four commandments contain our duty to God and the other six our duty to humanity. Okay, so what the confession wants us to know in paragraph two is that from what we learned last week, that this law, so, so that we can keep up with what we were learning last week, we called it the natural law, right? So you can call it a natural law, you can call it the law of comprehensive obedience, you can call it the law of universal obedience, whichever that you are comfortable with, you can call it that. So now, the confession wants us to know that this law, this natural law, which God wrote on Adam's heart, because that's what we learned last week, we call it the natural law. So. If you notice now, when they say this same law, it may confuse you. They didn't say these same laws because there are two things they talked about in paragraph one. The first one is what? The natural law. Second one is what? The positive law. But now they are referring to the natural law, not the positive law. Is anybody confused? Okay. So they are saying that this natural law was written on Adam's heart. But the way they phrased it, you realize that they said in the heart of man. So what they are, what they are really saying there is that man, woman, child, as long as the person is born of Adam, that is, is the posterity of Adam, this law is written upon his heart. So that you don't think that it is only Adam that the natural law is upon his heart. Now, we know that this natural law, because of our fallenness, there is a, it has been affected. So either, so, so you can look at it in many ways. How are we affected? In the way that, in the ability for you to keep it, for instance, or even in your correctly interpreting it, or even just thinking through it. Because when you read um, Genesis, by the time you get to chapter six, you realize that, that everybody, almost everybody, they've gone away from this natural law. But it does not mean that the law is not written upon their hearts. Remember that we read Romans 2 last week. I'm not sure why, why, why I'm trying to go over last week again. But the point is that Romans 2 tells us that God judged people who did not, that is people that, when, that are not Jews, that had the law. Yet, God judged them because of the law that is written upon their heart. Do you understand? So when God comes and he says in Genesis 6 that, you know what, that there's so much iniquity, I'm going to bring a flood. 
On which standard is he expecting them to have been upright? So those are some of the arguments we went through last week. It is upon that there truly is a law on their heart and it can hold them responsible. And it did hold them responsible. Are you following? The same argument you can apply to Sodom and Gomorrah. Are you following? Good. So the confession now is saying that don't think that it's only Adam's heart that this was written upon. So that after the fall, you know, that's it. Like, you know, so nobody had, no. The, the argument from scripture is consistent that this law is still written upon people's heart. And you, you would find that in other stories you would hear of uh, people going to some remote parts of the world where uh, they don't have any, uh, what's it called, any conversation with the outside world, yet they exist in some strict, not necessarily strict code, but there is a law which, which is, you know, guiding them. You would realize that things like murder is, is frowned upon. Even in the remotest parts of the world. I, I, I don't know where, where is remote, to be honest. Maybe Amazon. I don't know. I don't know the remote parts of the world. But wherever that you find them, you know, all those stories of the tribes that are still not wearing clothes. Whatever it is, when you get there, you may not find that they are keeping, like they are keeping every bit of it. But you would find that there are just some things that they are going to be upholding. And that is the argument here. Okay, so let's move on. So what they are trying to say here is that everybody has this natural law. By the way, now I'm digressing. You know that there are still some places in the world today that the gospel hasn't got into. Like they've, like they've never heard the name Jesus ever before. And yet they are dying and they are still going to be judged. The question will still be under what law. Are you following? So if God is going to be just, like we argued last week, then he must make man in such a way that man is without excuse by putting, by, or by writing the law. So let's use the right words. He wrote the law on the heart of every man. In fact, if you want to press the analogy, he wrote the law on every man's heart with his finger. Okay. So, the confession goes on to say, and here's where we want to start from, that it continued to be a perfect rule of righteousness after the fall. That is, even after the fall, God still judged perfectly. God still judged righteously. And the question is, by what law? And the confession is giving us the answer by the natural law. So what the confession wants us to know is that God's, God's standard did not change. God's holy, righteous, upright standard did not change because of the fall. Which is why we argued last week that that natural law must then have been moral law. Do you, I, I feel like I'm repeating, so with the hope that I'm just really just bringing what we've said last week back to your mind. Okay, so that is what they are arguing. But the question is, and like we said last week, the, the way that they wrote these things, this is the summary statement. The documents for their argumentation or whatever was their presupposition in that day, they did not supply or supply or, uh, uh, give us with the document. Do you, know, do you get what I'm saying? So when they give us the document, they just gave us the summary documents. They did not present to us. Well, I mean, there are some documents, there are some books that have the entire argumentation, by the way, if you wanted to find out. But when you read the summary statement, you have to have it at the back of your mind that there, there's something in their mind, there's a way that they've interacted with the scriptures and interpreted it that brought about these statements. So why is it that they are saying here that this natural law continued to be the perfect rule of righteousness? That is, the way that God judged from Genesis till the giving of the law was using this natural law. There are some scriptures that I think that they must have inter interacted with, and I want to share 
these scriptures with us. First, let's turn to Job 31. Now, who here does not know that Job was written in the time of Genesis? Okay, so I'm safe. So when I say, um, when I say Job 31, it is because Job was written during the time of the patriarchs. So Job 31 from verse 24 to 28. Is, is the mic working now? The mic wasn't working before. So. Okay, so someone can read that for us. So, um, we, we have, I don't know, we have like, uh, 10 verses. So if you can uh, help me with some, Job 31, 24 to 28, Job, sorry, Genesis 31, 32, Leviticus 18, verse 21. So I've, I've called three, that's three different people. Job 31, 24 to 28, Genesis 31, 32, Leviticus 18, 21. Who's reading Job 31? Job 31. From verse 24 to 28. Yes. If I have made good my trust, or called fine good my confidence, if I have rejoiced because my wealth was abundant, or because my hand had found much, if I have looked at the sun when it shone, or the moon moving in splendor, and my heart has been secretly enticed, and my mouth has kissed my hand, these also would be an iniquity to be punished by the judges. For I would have been forced to God above. Okay, now, who is reading Genesis? Just let me see your hand. Who is reading Genesis? Okay, hold on. Who is reading uh, Leviticus? Okay, good. All right. Uh, no, no, don't give that. Which law do you think in verse 28 that Job was saying that, I mean, because you read it yourself in verse 28 that if he had done all the things he mentioned from 24 to 27, it should have been iniquity. What's, what's iniquity? Okay, so what's sin? Yes, but which one specifically? It's Bible study, so we need to interact with each other. The reason I locked the uh, Genesis and Leviticus is that if I ask you this question now, nobody wants to read again. But which law specifically do you think he's saying that he would have sinned against God? Good. Which of that, which of the law is that? Use the mic, thank you. The first uh, commandment. What's the first commandment? Thou shalt not make unto thyself um, any grieving image that I have no. Then the second is thou shalt have no other God before me. <laughs> no, 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 no. What is commandment number one? Thou shalt have no other God before me. Good. What's commandment number two? Thou shalt not make unto thyself any grieving image. So, which one is Job saying that if he had done these things, he would have broken? One. So, you are making the argument here that even though, by the way, like we said, Job existed before Moses, Job is saying, and Job is very clear, that if he had done these things, he would have broken the first commandment. And you can throw in the second commandment there as well. Are, are you following it? Yeah. Okay, so let's go to Genesis. Genesis 31, 32. Genesis 31, 32. Ah. Yes. Anytime with, sorry, anyone with whom you find your, your goods, Shall not live. In no, no, no. Uh, uh, with whom you find your what? Gods. Okay. Okay. Gods. Okay. Shall not live in okay. the presence of your kinsmen. Point out what I have, I have that is yours and take it. Now, Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. Okay. Do you guys know the story here? Yeah, Can you guys remember the story? Okay, yes. you remember the story. All right. So now, first of Laban is pursuing Jacob. And he wants to bring a charge, obviously. But 
charge that he has done what if there is no law? And Jacob identifies that he is coming to charge him with theft. That is commandment number what? No, that's commandment number what? Stealing is commandment number what? Okay. And then, but in, but in addition, there's something that is driving Jacob to even, to add the death penalty. Can you say that? He basically is saying that if, if there's someone in my own house that's worshiping an idol, to the point that he stole the idol, put to death, under what law? Under what law? No, it's not you. It's the person that read I'm asking. Uh, under what law? The natural law. Good. Yes. And you have identified which of the commandments now? Commandment number one. eight and one. Are you following the, the, this development? So that, because what they are trying to tell you in the confession is this. Even before Moses, people have been saying they will put people to death. People have been swearing and saying that if I do this, then God will be unhappy. And the question will be, under what law? Because if you are arguing that the law came at Moses, then how... Are you following the argument? Okay, good. Let's let's try and rush now. Next one is Leviticus 18, 21 to 25. Okay, Leviticus 18... 21 to 25. Yes. Okay. You shall not give any of your children to offer them to Molech and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not lie with a male, with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. And you shall not lie with any animal and so make yourself unclean with it. Neither shall any woman give herself to an animal to lie with. It is perversion. Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things, for by all this, all, for by all these, the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean. And the land became unclean, so that I punish its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. Read 27 as well. Thank you. 27. For the people of the land who were before you, did all of these abominations so that the land became unclean. Do you, do you understand the argument? Now, by the way, this is in the law, but do, do you understand what God is doing here? So explain what you think God is doing here. I think he's giving them laws that they mm-hmm. should obey, which is still under the natural law. Like from even verse 21, I could see like three, three laws there. Mm-hmm. Which if they are, if they are done that, they are, if they are to offer their children up to Molech, mm-hmm. one, I think they are sacrificing, which is murder, and that's the law number six, then, uh, they are still serving another god, which is still, mm-hmm. and, and they are serving an idol, which is commandment good. number one and two. Mm-hmm. But did you notice that God said, now, that is, even though God is just giving this law, God said he had punished some people that did this one, even though he's just giving it. Do you notice? He's saying that I punished some people that did these things. So how is it just if they didn't have that law? If you think that this is the first time that this law is ever known to man. Are you following this argument? If you think that this is the first time that a, that humans know not, that is human male know not to lie with human male, that it is in this law, then why did God throughout the other occupants. And he said that they did these things and I threw them out because they were abominations. It must mean, and that's the argument, that they have the natural law written upon their hearts, even though they were falling. They knew not to do it. Are you following the argument? Okay. So we've covered how many laws now? We've covered one, um, we've covered two, we've covered eight, we've covered uh, six. Okay. Um, which law do you think was being broken, if I can use it that way? Or which law do you think was the problem in Genesis 11? 
we can't read the, the, the whole of Genesis 11. So let me just ask. Genesis 11, which law? I, I want to be sure that you are, you are understanding their argument. Which law do you think God was holding the people in Genesis 11 accountable to? Genesis 11 is the story of the Tower of Babel. Which law? Commandment number what? Were they breaking in Genesis 11? I, I want to see your expertise. Commandment number what? Okay, two. Who has a different opinion? Do you guys know this? Do you guys know the story of Tower of Babel? Okay, which which law, which commandment do you think that they were breaking? Because remember that God came to judge them. On which law? Which law were they breaking? Think about it. Which law were they breaking? Said two. You said two. Any other opinion apart from two? You said two. Okay. Let me ask you, what is commandment number two again? Good. Was that what we're doing in Tower of Babel? Covetousness. Any, any other, someone is arguing for covetousness here. Any other thing that's on your mind? What is commandment number three? Okay, have you read the expanding of commandment number three in the, in the Baptist confession? What are the duties that commandment number three is asking you to, and what are the things it's prohibiting? Do you think that you were breaking commandment number three? Let me just ask. Because there's a key word there that you guys know. What was the famous thing they said to themselves? Good. So what were they breaking? What were they breaking? They are still not convinced. The third commandment. Okay, let's move on. Exodus 16. So you can give it to the person behind you, the mic. Exodus 16, 22. Because let us all do this activity together. Because I want to be sure that you not you are not only agreeing with me because I'm standing here, but because you can see it. Exodus 16, 22. No, you. Ah, why are you giving to the person behind? Exodus, you know. Exodus 16, 22. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omas each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what, boil what you will boil. And all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. Moses said, Eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? Thank you. Thank you. Um, it's obvious the, com the, the commandment that they were breaking here. But do you know that this was before God gave the commandment? The commandment was given in Exodus 20. This is Exodus 16. So, where is Moses seeing the commandment from? Is it? <laughs> okay. Um, let's move on. I, I, I'll, I'll leave you to keep thinking about it. Which commandment do you think Ham broke? Ham, the son of 
um, Noah. Which commandment do you think he broke? That's commandment number what? Okay, good. So that the next time you come to that verse and you're wondering why um, uh, Noah he's, is punishing Ham by, by cursing him, you understand it is because of what? Because what? He broke the commandment of God. Are you following the story? Okay, good. Which commandment do you think Cain broke? Well, that's pretty obvious. That's your number. <laughs> commandment number what? Okay, good. You see, you guys are getting it. Which law do you think Joseph was referring to in Genesis 39? Wait, okay, let's read Genesis 39. Genesis 39 verse 9. We're actually going at a slow pace because I, maybe it's the rain. Everybody seems very dull. 39 verse 9. There is no one greater in this house, this is Joseph speaking, than I and he, he that's Potiphar has withheld nothing from me except you, talking to the wife, because you are his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? Which, which law was revealed to, I mean, where is the law that calls what is being suggested here great evil? You said? Adultery, good. But the question that is, that is behind all of this looking is that, is, is what? These were things that were condemned outrightly in reference to God before the law of Moses was even given. Are you following the confession's argument? I'm, I'm basically just making the argument. I'm trying to prove, prove the argument. Do you understand what I'm doing? They, they've said this statement. They've said that after the fall, God still continued to hold out this perfect law. And we said last week that the law written upon man's heart, the natural law, is a perfect law, is a moral law, and that God continued to uphold it. And that in essence, what is contained in the, in the natural law is the same thing contained in the Decalogue, so that both of them have a common denominator. They are both moral laws. Do you understand? So, so that you can see what they are saying, because, you know, before, before you think that they did some sort of gymnastics, maybe they came together and said, you know what, let us agree to this. And so they've written a statement, and we as a church too, we are just, you know, we are bound to the statement. That's not what's happening. They've looked at the scriptures themselves, and they've seen these things that from commandment number one to commandment number ten was condemned even before God gave it on Mount Sinai. Which is why they concluded by saying, listen to it, that it was delivered by God on Mount Sinai. So when they are saying it was delivered by God on Mount Sinai in Ten Commandments, they are not saying that God now sat and be like, ah, uh, let me think of something new to bind these people with. All that, that, all that happened on Mount Sinai is that he was just encoding it. That is, he wrote it down. These were the laws everybody knew in one form or another. Do you understand? From commandment number one till the last commandment. Which commandment have we not proven yet? Commandment number... Lying. Okay, so... Um, let us uh, look for time. Genesis 47, uh, 17. Genesis 47, 17. Let me just read it. Um, which law do you think Joseph was applying here? 47, 17 says, so you, br so they brought their, but no, I'm ready. 44, excuse me, 17. But he said, far be it from me to do this. The man in whose possession the cup has been found, he shall be my slave. But as for you, you can go up to your father. So this is when they found the cup in Benjamin's sack. And he was going to hold on to him as a punishment for stealing. And it would have been unrighteous. At least they could have challenged him that you're unrighteous. Which law is that? We didn't know that if, if we took something that belonged to you is wrong. But he didn't say that. Do you understand? In fact, the moment, if, the first time that they saw their money, on their sack. You know, they were already afraid. By what law? Why, why did they think that it was wrong 
to have paid for something and still find the money with you. The natural law. Are you following the argument? Good. Then in Genesis 27, let's just look at Genesis 20, 27, then someone else will open to Job 31. Genesis 27, 19, so that we can cover the last two. 27, verse 19, and Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you have told me. Rise up, please eat, sorry, please, rise up, please, sit and eat of my game that you Sorry, that your soul may bless me. Then Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? And he said, Because Yahweh your God caused this to happen to me. Now, let me just say, there are two things that he's breaking here. First off, he's lying. And to tell you that he's lying, when Esau came, in fact, Isaac already thought that he was lying because he said that his voice was different. Are you following? So that when Esau came, he knew that he had been deceived. What is deception? Which law is against deception? That's what I'm asking. Commandment number what? Thank you. False witness. Have you guys never read the expanding of the law itself? Okay. All right. Job 31 verse 1. No one opens it. Job 31 verse 1. I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at the present? Thank you. Verse 9. If my heart has been enticed towards a woman, and I have lain in wait of my neighbor's door, then let my wife run for another. Okay. So what, what do you think he's saying there? Correcting the previous law. Which, which law is that? So you see that he said that if he had if he had broken commandment number 10, he even put himself under a curse. Are you following this? Because but why 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 is it wrong to have to have to, to lost after someone? Which law said is, is wrong? The law that we call the natural law. Do you understand now? So, it means that we have to agree with the confession that before even the giving of the Decalogue, so, or let's just call it Ten Commandments now, so that we can differentiate it. So, we have how many laws now? We have the natural law, the positive law, and then the Ten Commandments. So, the confession is saying that before the giving of the Ten Commandments, God has been holding people to the same standard that you will find in the Ten Commandments. Are you following? So that when you get to the Ten Commandments, God is not doing anything that new with the Ten Commandments. Now, here's what the Confession is trying to say to us. They said that God wrote the Ten Commandments how? How? With his finger upon what? Good. What do you think that they are arguing for with the natural law? That he wrote it with the finger where? So it is, it is not the law that is different. Are you following the argument? They are not saying that the natural law is different from the decalogue. They are just saying that where it is written is what is different. Are you following? So that it is no longer like an unspoken rule. It is now in tablets of stone. That is, it's etched on stone and kept somewhere for everybody to see forever. Now, the reason they are making this argument is because later on, they want to argue that whatever, however you are interpreting the verses in the Bible that says that we are no longer under the law, it cannot include the moral law. This is where they are going. And so you must, you must follow them closely. Because the problem that we face today is when we see those kinds of verses in the Bible, maybe when Paul says that you are no longer under law, but you are under grace. You know those kinds of verses. And then it throws you off because you are not asking yourself, okay, I'm not under the law. 
So they want to make the argument that what, however you want to interpret those kinds of verses, and then there are like a couple of them, it cannot include the moral law because even before the giving of the law on Mount Sinai, the moral law has been in effect. Are you understanding the argument now? Okay, good. So, and here's where they are really, really going with this particular section, this paragraph two. What they want you to know is this. Whatever you think is happening on Mount Sinai has to be as gracious as the natural law itself. So the question is, what exactly then? Because think about it. If everybody, Job, um, Joseph, Abraham, if, if everybody, basically Noah, because Noah knew that his, his children should not have dishonored him, or his child rather should not have dishonored him. If everybody, you know, knew this law, even Jethro knew the law. If all of these people knew the law, so why then, what was the, what was the essence of the drama on Mount Sinai? Because that, that is now the next question. We know it already. So why are you going the extra mile to put it on, you know, to write it, and then there's thunder, and then there's lightning, and then there's fire? I mean, you guys remember how he gave the, the, the Ten Commandments, yes? So why do you, why did he go through that extra mile? Here's what you should know. There are two reasons why he went through the extra mile, or better still, so that you can store this well as good information. The question is, why Sinai? Since Sinai or the Decalogue is not giving anything that anybody didn't know before. So why Sinai? Well, the first thing is this, and so that you can answer this question well, and I'll spend the remaining of my minutes trying to give a good answer. Before, so that you can understand why Sinai, you need to understand Genesis 1.28. Now, in Genesis 1.28, God looked at Adam, and then he told him to fill the earth, have dominion, and basically gave Adam and Eve promises. Now, in Genesis 3, are you following the story? Adam and Eve, they disobeyed God, they sinned, and so they fell from the glory of God, and God kicked them out, and they lost the promise. But before God kicked them out, in Genesis 3.15, God looks at them, so I want you to follow this story, and mercifully and graciously proclaims the gospel to them in Genesis 3.15. You know it up to this point, yes? So, if you do not see Genesis 3.15 as grace in itself, then you are not going to understand the story of the Bible. What, what Adam and Eve was expecting from God was to pronounce upon them the threatenings in Genesis 2. Remember when he threatened them that if you eat of this tree, what will happen to you? You will die. So what do you think that Adam and Eve was expecting when God came? Do you think they were expecting grace? I mean, if they were expecting grace, then that's the problem because nobody expects grace. Nobody expects mercy. Do you understand? Because it is, you don't, you don't expect it. You, the only thing you ever expect, again, I know that you are a corrupt Nigerian. So anytime you break the law, you're always hoping that someone will be gracious. But the normal thing is that when you sin, you should expect that whatever proclamation has been made, about the, the people that um, disobey this law, you will experience it. That is that. So you, you must understand what was happening in Genesis three. That when they, when God called them out, they were coming out to be judged to death. So on hearing that you will have a seed, it must have immediately occurred to Eve that she was going to live beyond that day. So therefore, the threatening of death will not be applied. Are you following? Because the only way she will have a seed is that she's going to exist tomorrow or another day. Do you understand? If I'm coming to, to, to die and then you, and you say to me that, you know what's going to happen? A child. And that child will crush the head of the serpent. Then I immediately know that you are already applying grace. I am not going to die. Or at least you are being merciful to me. But in proclaiming mercy, the proclamation itself is gracious. Are you following the story? Good. 
Now, why this is important is because the entire story from Genesis 3.15 is about what? The seed coming to bruise the head of the serpent. So whatever else you read after that time must be interpreted in that light, including what happened on Mount Sinai. You cannot think that what happened on Mount Sinai is that God he started the program of grace in Genesis 3.15, then gets to Mount Sinai and says, you know what, let's pause that program of grace for a minute. Let me, let me go back to the covenant of works. That's not what happened on Mount Sinai. What is happening on Mount Sinai is still the covenant of grace itself. Because God from Genesis 3.15 just kept furthering his agenda. And what is the agenda? That the seed of the woman will bruise the head of the serpent. At this point, is anybody confused? Is it clear up to this point? So, when you ask the question, why Sinai? You must trace the story from Genesis 1 to Genesis 2 to Genesis, Genesis 3, and you can skip some chapters and trace it to Genesis 12, where God called Abraham or Abram. And then he basically told him, in summary, that I am going to give you, how many things did he promise him? The first thing was what? Land. People don't know the Bible. The second thing that he promised him was what? Genesis 12. Good. Then the third thing he promised him was what? A relationship. So he promised him land. He promised him offspring. That is, it will grow to be a big nation. And then he blessed him. And then he said that I will be your God. So that is the agenda. You see that the agenda has still not changed because it is in the seed of Abraham that the entire nation of the world will be blessed. And who is that seed? So as the agenda changed in Genesis 12, you agree that it doesn't? Good. So when he gets, uh, you can follow the story, you can read by yourself. When you, when you get to Exodus and then they come to Mount Sinai, don't forget that the way to read it was that they've gone to Egypt. God has remembered his promise to Abraham, which is the expansion of the promise he made to Adam and Eve. Are you following the story? Which really is just bringing back the entire premise of Genesis 1. So he, he remembers and comes to their aid and then delivers them. By what? By grace. He delivers them by grace and leads them to Mount Sinai. What did God tell Moses to tell Pharaoh about coming to Mount Sinai? That let them go and worship me. So remember that he promised um, Abraham three things. A land, people, that is nations, and then a fellowship. So when he was bringing them out, which of the promise was he, was obvious to you that he wanted to, to, to fulfill the relationship, right? Because he said, come out and worship me on Mount Sinai. So when they get to Mount Sinai, what is Mount Sinai about? Is it bringing back the covenant of works or is just furthering his agenda of the covenant of grace? That is, is it just still trying to be gracious to... Because don't forget, he told them that there were many nations in the world, but I'm choosing you to have a special relationship with you. And what do you call that? You call that grace. So uh, Mount Sinai is nothing other than God continuing his agenda, grace. I would have asked if anybody is confused at this point, but I don't think anybody is. So, when they got to Mount Sinai, the first so that I can try and round up now, so that if you have any question, you can ask me. What happened on Mount Sinai is that God was ready to bring about this system of religion and government for them, which will basically fulfill his promise to Abraham. The reason God is coming to their rescue is because they are children of Abraham. Are you following? Because he told them that it is for your father's sake and when father's sake is talking about the promise he made to Abraham. So on Mount Sinai, God was just, because don't forget, 
if the seed is going to come, then God is going to need a remnant. He's going to need a holy nation. He's going to need a people that is going to be in a close, holy relationship with in terms of worship. So that the seed can come, who will eventually crush the head of the serpent? And that is all that was happening on Mount Sinai. And that is what the confession is telling you by telling you that all of this led to Mount Sinai. So when they say that God delivered the same thing on Mount Sinai, why they, are, why, why they made sure to frame it this way is so that you can immediately just ask the question, so why Sinai? And you can trace that all Sinai was doing if Sinai is basically just putting, just putting, putting something down that everybody already knew, then there's something behind Sinai. And that is that God is furthering his covenant of grace. So, God was preparing a nation that will come into this relationship with him where he will be their God, that is, they will be a nation to him, and he will, and they will be his people, the people that will worship him, and they will continue like that, being a holy nation until the seed will eventually come who will crush the head of the serpent. Is paragraph too clear? Why I keep saying this is, I do not want you at any point to lose sight of what they are trying to do because they are, they are using seven paragraphs to argue that the law, when properly looked at, does not conflict with the grace of God. So that when you finish reading chapter 19, you are supposed to love the law of the Lord more. Because the law of the Lord is basically God being gracious to you. Because these those that God wants to be in a relationship with, that he gives his law to obey. This is why they talked about Sinai. So that all the questions, and there's another reason why they're saying it, so I just mentioned it now. And I've already mentioned it, because you are going to get to a point now where they are going to open up some other scriptures in Hebrews, in Galatians, and in some other scriptures that will tell you that you are not under the law and you are under grace. And some people have argued that what that means is that you are not under anything that happened on Mount Sinai. Since they look at Mount Sinai as, that is the entirety of Mount Sinai as the law. But they are trying to argue now that just know that the Decalogue in itself, that is the Ten Commandments, is different. Or, no, let me say it this way. That when you read the Old Testament, you would realize in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament that there, there is an internal division in the law itself that you should have read into the law. I don't know if I'm saying it with many words. Here's what they are saying. In the law, when you read it properly, you would realize that, for instance, the Ten Commandments is differentiated from the judicial law, which is also differentiated from the ceremonial law in Exodus. That is, if you read Exodus itself, that is, what they're saying is that they are not the ones imposing a division of the law. And if there is a division of the law in the Old Testament, when the New Testament writers say that you are not under law, the question should be, which of the division? Do you understand? Let me make the argument again. If reading the, if reading Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, if you're reading it, you see that Moses himself said that there is a division in the law that God has given me. It means that the New Testament writers knew about that division. Yes? So when they write and say you are not under law, your question should be, which of the parts of the law are you referring to? So they're making this argument, and already in paragraph 2, and I'll end now, they are making the argument that the moral law is definitely different 
from the judicial law and the ceremonial law in that this, the, 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 the moral law, that's the Ten Commandments, had been in existence, I don't know how many years, is between Genesis 1 and, and Exodus 20. I, 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 know it's, I, know, I know it's, I know it's long. I know Genesis 12 to Genesis, sorry, Genesis 12 to Exodus 20 is 400 years. So, hmm? Whichever number of years you put to it. So they argue that this moral law has been in existence way before so whatever way, in fact, whatever you are thinking right now, you are under the moral law. That is like, let's even let's even assume that when you say you are not under the law, they mean the, the Ten Commandments. Guess what? You will still be under the natural law. And what is the natural law? The Ten Commandments. But in the argument, they are going to argue that you are actually under the real Ten Commandments as given by Moses. And their argument would include all of the things I've been saying. And they are going to add one thing, and I'll just add that and close. That did you realize that when God was giving the law, I don't know if you've noticed it before, in Exodus 20, he told all of them to go and cleanse themselves. Did, did, did you notice in Exodus 19? So they, they had a bath, do you guys, do you guys read Exodus at all? The way you're looking at us is very confused. So they took a bath, right? Everybody, um, excuse me, stayed away from sexual immorality or even sexual relations altogether. They stayed away from everything and they were ready to come and hear God. Yes? And then, in, the next thing that happened at the end of Genesis 19 was thunder. And the, uh, the mount itself was quaking and fire and then there was smoke and there was so much, there was so much drama that everybody was afraid. And the Genesis 20 starts by saying God spoke from heaven. So they heard the voice of God. If you read, read Exodus 20, God only said 10 words. And that is, by 10 words, I mean 10 commandments. So that when Moses was going to recite it in Deuteronomy, he said God only spoke ten commandments and he didn't say anything again. After he was done, you can read it when you get home. After he was done with the tenth commandments, he paused. And people were like, we don't want to hear this again. You go there, hear whatever he wants to say, come back and tell us. So that when Moses was talking in Deuteronomy, he said that you remember that God spoke to all of us the ten words, but every other thing he spoke to me to come and tell you. So, so Moses himself differentiated or put a division in the moral law versus every other thing by saying that when God was going to give it, it was with so much drama. It was with so much drama, not just in the words. After God was done talking, do you know what he did next? He brought out stone by himself and wrote it down. The other things, he left Moses to write. But these ten words, he wrote it. Even when Moses broke it, and Moses brought new tablets, do you know what God still did? God wrote it again. And when he was coming down, where did Moses put the two tablets? Do you remember? Where did, God, where did Moses put the two tablets? Where did he, that is when he was coming down from the mountain with the two tablets. He put it inside where? Thank you. He put it in the ark. And where did they put the ark? In the holy of holies. Are you, are you following the argument? That is, the Ten Commandments has a special status in the law of Moses. And Moses was the one that wrote it that way. That is, when he was explaining the entire thing, he wrote it that way that, see, oh, God, God is so interested in this Ten Commandments that he wrote it down on tablets of stone by himself, took it, gave it back to him, he took it, brought it into the ark. That was the only thing in the ark. He closed the ark up and took it inside the Holy of Holies. Any question or comments?
Uh, so, my question is, um, how do we, uh, how do we um, prove for the arguments that okay, since the natural laws are being imprinted in every every human being's heart, um, now from the paragraph we read, say the first four commandments contain our duty to God and the other six are duty to humanity. So how do we um give for example when you're talking you made mention of um maybe people who are in maybe those remote areas whereby probably the gospel hasn't gotten to them. Now imagine fallen men trying to keep these ten commandments, which of course they can't, no matter how righteous they prove to be. Okay, so imagine them trying to keep the last six, which is their duty to humanity. Now, not to talk of people who don't know God, how would they even keep the four? So how do we say that every, the entirety, the entirety of the Ten Commandments, each of them is written in the heart of every man? I don't know if you get my question. So, okay, in areas whereby the gospel hasn't gotten to them. Mm-hmm. Okay, probably, I think, I'm trying to remember the scripture that said, um, maybe by true nature, everyone has no excuse. They've seen mm-hmm. the wonders of mm-hmm. God. Okay, mm-hmm. so how would we argue for maybe, um, like, maybe the third commandment, the fourth commandment, like, how do they know that they are to keep the Sabbath day holy? Would they know that? They, maybe oh, with their I conscience, see. tell them I that, okay, there's something like the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Yeah, then the name of the, the name of uh, our mm. Lord, not to use it in vain. Mm. I don't know if you get it now. Yes, but yeah. is that not you answering the question already? I or, don't think so. Maybe it's just me thinking you've answered the question. So let me see if I can say the question again. So you're asking that um, you can understand if People should know the last six, but how are they supposed to know the first four? Is, is that the question? Is that something like that? Yes, something. Okay, good. So, the way that you expect them to know the first four is that it is written on their hearts. That's why I say I think you're answering the question. Except you want me to supply an answer that the Bible doesn't supply. So, look at Romans 2. So look at Paul's argument. Um, so he says in verse, uh, let's read from 11. So like, well, let's read from 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the errors of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law naturally, it's not saying natural law, it's saying they don't have the, the decalogue that is written down. Do the things of the law. These, not having the law, are a law to themselves in that they demonstrate the work of the law written in their hearts. Their consciences bearing witness and their thoughts alternate, alternately accusing or else defending them. So what Paul is saying here is, so that I can back it up well, by the inspiration of God, he is telling us that it will turn out on the day of judgment that everybody's conscience will bear witness that they knew the the entire moral law. You can say that right now you don't know it, but that would just be Telling you what Paul said in Romans 1, when he said in verse 18, that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That's all that is happening. Every man is responsible for suppressing the truth. And it's the reason why you, you hear some people make arguments that, you know, you, you can know that there's a God in heaven just from looking at nature and if you know that there is a supreme being, then you, then you ought to worship him. So what I'm saying, why I'm giving you this very simple answer is because it's, it's, it's written like that in the Bible. It's not that we can't go to other verses, but at the end of the day, we have to come to a verse that states it clearly, that everybody 
in the day, in fact, look at, look at 16. On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Jesus Christ. When everybody stands before God, everything will be laid bare. Everything. Even, it is that day that you will realize that people kneel not to take the name of the Lord in vain. That is, that is the answer that the Bible gives us to this question. Are there arguments to prove it? Yes, but this verse exists this way. And so I think that it is good to use this verse. Except anybody else wants, as, but I, I, I don't, I, I've taken so much time and I feel guilty. So that's why I just read the verse out. Everybody knows the 10 laws. Everybody knows the 10 laws. They may suppress it in unrighteousness, but on the day when God is judging them, their conscience will bear witness that they knew it because there were some other Gentiles that kept it. And that's what the Bible says. Any other comment or question? Otherwise, I would like to pray. Our Father in heaven, we are grateful for this time that we've spent looking at the law of God. It's your law, and we want to say together with the psalmist that we love your law, and we love it with the whole of our hearts, strength, soul, and mind. So our desire is that this lesson, this study, will produce in us a fervent love for your law, and that for those of us that our love for your law has waned, that this study will reawaken our love for it. In fact, help us going from here to be challenged that the Ten Commandments has a special place in your own heart. So therefore, it should have a special place in our own heart. Help us to memorize it for those of us that have not memorized it. Help us to not only memorize it, but also to keep it by the grace of God. And we pray that you'll bless our going home and that you'll please bless the remainder of our week. In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen.